and welcome again to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. Hello, I'm Christine Burns. In a week or so from now, the Queen's speech will mark the start of a new parliamentary term, setting out the coming year's legislative agenda. One of the big topics in that new agenda will be a new all-encompassing equality bill. So I thought it would be timely to look back on the history for equal rights law in Britain. I'm going to remind you about some of the key concepts and issues. I also plan to talk a little about what other countries have done. Then we'll look at the way the government consulted on the coming legislation and what it's expected to cover. But first, as I said, let's look back at the history. The contemporary framework for equal rights protection in Britain can be traced back to the 1960s and 1970s and the Labour government of Harold Wilson. Interestingly, if you want to look for equality legislation prior to this, then you'd have to go all the way back to the Representation of the People Act in 1928, which finally gave equal voting rights to women. The legislative road began with the first Race Relations Act in 1965, followed by the Equal Pay Act in 1970. The fact that equal pay between men and women doing similar work is still a problem in 2008 tells us something about the ineffectiveness of legislation alone in tackling deeply embedded inequalities. But the 1970s was certainly a heady time. The Sex Discrimination Act in 1975 was accompanied by a more comprehensive Race Relations Act in 1976, all these moves echoing similar forms of protection introduced in the United States a decade beforehand. Indeed, these three Acts of Parliament, pay, sex and race, plus a few accompanying regulations, were all you needed to know about equality in the 1970s, and for almost two more decades. In 1972, Britain became a member of what was then the European Community, and which later became the European Union in 1992, with the signing of the Maastricht Treaty. The Conservative government of the time opted out of the social chapter of the treaty, which included provisions on which anti-discrimination law would be based. Although the Tories did pass the Disability Discrimination Act in 1995, it was not until Tony Blair's new Labour government won the 1997 election that the UK opted into the social provisions of EU law. In 2000, the EU overhauled and introduced new directives explicitly protecting people with a particular sexual orientation, religion, belief and age, as well as updating the protection against disability, race and gender discrimination. But the way in which this has been implemented in Britain, often by attacking regulations under existing heavily amended Acts of Parliament, is what accounts for the complicated system that confronts us all today. The Equality and Human Rights Commission, which replaced the Equal Opportunities Commission, the Commission for Racial Equality and the Disability Rights Commission last year, says that the total volume of all this evolved equalities legislation is now immense and unwieldy. One estimate suggests that you would need to be conversant with over a 100 separate Acts of Parliament, regulations and case precedents to understand it all. Understanding this huge rickety framework demands familiarity with many different concepts too. Firstly, the history of the way in which protection has evolved around particular groups in society means that the law has separate approaches to discrimination that's grounded in your sex, your race, disability, sexual orientation, religion or belief and age. 
Further kinds of discrimination related to other experiences, such as being a carer or changing your gender, have given rise to case law or patches in the law to cover the gaps as they are revealed by high-profile legal action. Very little of this law is consistent, though. Disability protection was first enacted in 1995 and uses different language and ideas than 1970s sex discrimination law. The new Race Relations Amendment Act in 2000 played leapfrog and then the Disability Discrimination Act was also revised in 2005. Laws originally set out to tackle direct discrimination, for example the, the no Jews or no blacks signs you once saw in houses. Indirect discrimination has been much harder to pin down as it takes different forms in different spheres of life. This means that if you're a black woman you not only have to decide whether your discrimination is based upon sex or race, but the same action by an employer or service provider can be judged differently depending on which one you choose. The same goes for harassment, which is differently understood depending on whether you've experienced sexual harassment or racial harassment, for instance. Some laws have covered people in the sphere of employment or education, but not in the provision of goods, services or housing. People who have undergone or are undergoing gender reassignment finally obtained employment and vocational education protections in 1999, but have only recently obtained protection from discrimination in the supply of goods or housing in April this year. If you're gay or lesbian, then you don't have any protections at all till April 2007, when provisions were tacked onto the Equalities Act. Till then, a gay couple could be refused social housing, for instance. The piecemeal way these steps have occurred mean that the exceptions are really complex too. Any equalities advance will have people who resist the provision. They're the sort of people who say, of course I support equal rights for X, but... The original 1975 sex discrimination was riddled with these special but clauses. They're called genuine occupational qualifications. Over the years, many of these have been whittled down by amending regulations as society became more relaxed. Yet each step has its opponents. The protections for gay and lesbian people contain exceptions which are insisted upon by religious groups, for instance, and these operate in different ways to the exceptions for transsexual people or for disabilities. How do you define disability? Who do you compare yourself with to say a particular action is discriminatory? If you're a housing provider and none of your accommodation is suitable for people with multiple sclerosis, then how does that figure? Is MS a disability or not? Are people protected if they merely associate with someone who attracts discrimination? Supposing someone simply perceives or imagines you to be gay or Jewish? Are these kinds of situations handled consistently within the body of the law? The answer is no. And then there's a new problem that's come along in the last seven or eight years. Up until recently, all discrimination law in Britain worked on the basis that the person who claimed discrimination needed to use the law to pursue the perpetrator. There are tens of thousands of such cases that go before tribunals every year, an estimated 50,000 equal pay cases from underpaid council workers, for instance. For many people who experience discrimination, and I think that's better than calling them victims, simply don't have the resources or stamina. A sex discrimination case may take two years. It's likely to be opposed strongly by an employer with deeper pockets to bring in the best lawyers. 
the recompense at the end may not help much. You may be labelled as a troublemaker. Any judgment in your favour may be appealed. Tribunal decisions only affect the individual's case. They can't address the circumstances of other people with that employer or require the employer to make systemic changes. It's these kinds of limitations which were recognised in the Stephen Lawrence inquiry in finding the Metropolitan Police Service institutionally racist. The recommendations of that inquiry led to the Race Relations Amendment Act 2000, introducing the concept of a statutory duty to eliminate race discrimination and promote better relations between racial groups. It came into effect in 2002. This potent new idea turns the responsibility for action on its head. Even though it only applies to public authorities, the private sector is exempt, it required the organisations responsible for society's whole framework to examine all their activities in a published race equality scheme, carry out equality impact assessments on their policies and strategies, and draw up action plans to produce specific outcomes. The idea of a public sector duty was reproduced for disability in 2006 as part of the revised Disability Discrimination Act. A gender equality duty was also written into the Equalities Act and came into effect in April 2007. Again, there are complex differences, though. The disability duty requires public authorities to involve stakeholders in their planning. The other duties only require consultation. The race duty is the only one to have the clause about promoting good relations. And so see how this gets to be so complicated. Discussion about having a single Equality Act covering everyone really began to get underway in 2002, at about the same time as the government started to consult on replacing the three Equality Commissions with what is now the Equality and Human Rights Commission. The two ideas go naturally together. Other countries have long since unified their legislation in this way. Unless you count the US Constitution of 1791, then Canada is generally regarded to have led the modern movement. Its Human Rights Act in 1985 goes beyond our own by prohibiting discrimination on the grounds of race, national or ethnic origin, colour, religion, age, sex, sexual orientation, marital status, family status, disability or conviction. It also placed the duty on employers and individuals, including businesses, to avoid discrimination and promote equality. Other countries, such as Australia and Norway, have taken similar approaches too, with solutions that combine an underlying principle of human rights and the idea of a single commission to police it all. It is the emphasis on ending discrimination which takes the Canadian approach beyond human rights as our law defines it and creates a single general-purpose instrument for encouraging equality. It's unlawful under the Canadian's 1985 Act to discriminate or harass an individual, to deny access to the provision of goods, service facilities or accommodation, deny access to commercial premises or residential accommodation, to refuse employment or continued employment or to differentiate adversely against an employee, to discriminate during employment application or advertisement or to pay men and women unequal wages for the same work. A person who feels that they have been discriminated against on more than one ground can still make a claim through the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. This means that multiple discrimination is recognised too. So this is the kind of approach which many commentators hoped to see emerging from our government. 
We had a long wait, though, even though the introduction of a single equality bill was a 2005 manifesto commitment. The government's thinking began to emerge with a green paper in June 2007, in the form of a formal consultation by the Discrimination Law Review, an expert group set up within Whitehall to examine the existing complex body of law and come up with proposals to simplify it. A framework for fairness was a massive consultation, nearly 200 pages, and the form it took indicated that rather than taking a radical new approach, the civil service lawyers working on the project were essentially trying to stitch 100 pieces of existing legislation into one, smoothing out some irregularities in the process, but not doing anything radical. The consultation resulted in an equally big response, 4,226 submissions overall. Of these, 597 were from organisations and 3,629 were from private individuals. Actually, 2,500 of the latter were identified as a result of a mass lobby by evangelical Christian groups opposing specific provisions for lesbian and gay people. Another 500 responses came from individuals who favoured extending protection against age discrimination beyond employment to cover goods, services and housing. A third batch of 500 responses concerned the rights of women to breastfeed in public. These figures all come from a subsequent 200-page report, which the government published in July 2008. According to that report, some bodies like the Equality and Human Rights Commission, the former Equalities Commissions, and organisations like the Trade Unions, Age Concern and Stonewall, thought that the proposals lacked ambition. Private sector firms and their representative bodies generally seemed happier with the more conservative tidying up approach, eliminating specific anomalies but not changing the whole fabric of law in a more fundamental way, such as in the Canadian model. The government say there was a broad consensus about positive action, extending the scope of voluntary initiatives to the extent permitted by European law. A present positive action, the Americans call it affirmative action, is generally prohibited, being as discriminatory as negative actions. However, it is allowed in certain very restricted circumstances. For instance, if an employer has two equally matched job candidates and employing one of them would help to address a gap in their workforce diversity, they are allowed to take that into consideration, so long as the appointment is ultimately on merit. The complexity is apparent, though, and many organisations would like to see a lot more clarity. The idea of having a single public sector equality duty was strongly supported too, along with the idea of using public sector procurement to drive change in the private sector. The CBI, for instance, commented that procurement can be an effective lever to improve equality. In other areas, opinion is reported to have been more divided, for instance, whether to extend the protection against age discrimination and to the provision of goods, facilities and services, the disposal of premises and the exercise of public functions. At the moment, you can refuse to house someone because they're too young or too old. Speaking personally, in spite of the rather conservative approach and the complexity and anomalies it threatens to preserve, I thought that the government's July response was quite good though. Above all, the response showed that we appear to be progressing on lines that have been informed by genuine widespread consultation. The response made the reasoning quite transparent. 
In some instances, the government indicated that the strength of responses had caused it to go along with the consensus. For instance, the 2005 Disability Discrimination Act introduced separate definitions of discrimination in employment and for the supply of goods, facilities and services, public functions, private clubs and premises. These separate definitions of discrimination have attracted criticism for making the law complex and difficult to follow, and the Discrimination Law Review consultation sought views on whether this should be addressed. The government now says that it has been persuaded to simplify the law. 75% of the responses had been in favour of that kind of simplification, led by the response by the former Disability Rights Commission. In other instances, and I've not been keeping score, the government indicates that it wasn't persuaded to change its view. What was more impressive, however, was that each area like this was discussed transparently in the government's response. They present both sides of the argument and then their conclusion. Headline points are that the government confirmed plans to introduce a new streamlined public sector equality duty to replace the race, disability and gender equality duties. They also plan to extend the new equality duty to age, sexual orientation and religion or belief and to make explicit that it covers gender reassignment. They promise to frame the new equality duty in a way which makes clearer the outcomes it's designed to achieve and to retain the existing structure of general and specific duties, leaving open the possibility that there could be different application of different duties to different authorities, as now. But they've said they're not going to proceed with other elements of the proposed restructuring of the duties, such as identifying priority objectives. Well, that was in July. However, by September of this year, more confusion and uncertainty seems to have been creeping in. For instance, there's been talk of abandoning the public sector requirement to carry out equality impact assessments, to me an essential discipline if public authorities are to be really aware of the implications which their strategy and policies can have on different groups. Equality impact assessment is not flawless as it stands. If you don't consult and don't have a clue about different needs, then it's easy for assessments to become just a tick box exercise. However, the evidence that some organisations are really that sloppy is valuable in its own right. For organisations that do assessment well, it's also a really good discipline for embedding an understanding of diverse needs into every planning action an organisation takes. The Equality Bill will be introduced by the Queen's Speech at the end of November. It will hopefully be on the statute book by the spring, although certain parts, such as the single equality duty, may not come into force until 2011. The hope is that, although it embodies no big radical approach, it will at least do what the government intends, replacing over a 100 statutes with one, ironing out inconsistencies which are themselves discriminatory, addressing gaps like multiple discrimination, and giving us a more intuitive idea of what the law intends for everybody. Let's not get carried away on the euphoria, though. The devil is in the detail. The bill that's introduced to Parliament will be eagerly read and dissected by all of us. There are bound to be battles, and even when it's passed and in force, let's not forget the lesson I pointed out right at the beginning. In 1970, Parliament passed an Equal Pay Act. In 1975, a Sex Discrimination Act. Since then, practically every group in society has been protected to varying degrees by one or more laws. Yet discrimination is still rife. Women are still not paid the same as men for the same work. 
Employment tribunals deal with tens of thousands of claims every year. The Canadian law's list of who is protected emphasises the number of ways in which every one of us can be discriminated. It's not the law that changes people's behaviours. People have to do that. And if it were that simple, then we'd have done it by now. Society does change, but change comes slowly. Women obtained the right to vote on equal terms in 1928, yet we're far from equally represented in Parliament. That's estimated to take another 200 years at the present rate of progress. But most people would agree that slavery is reprehensible. We at least know that sex discrimination is wrong, even if we can't prevent it sometimes. We're mostly shocked by race discrimination. Disability discrimination is becoming better understood, and so on. Society changes slowly, but we can change ourselves in an instant if we choose. And that's the thought I'd like to leave you with. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you've enjoyed it, then there are plenty of previous programmes to listen to. You'll find them all at podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. You can also subscribe via iTunes. Just look for Just Plain Sense in the online store. For now, it's goodbye and thank you all for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Mm-hmm.